Welcome back, loyal listening audience. I always appreciate your tuning in. And I, oh man, I said I wasn't going to say tuning in anymore. You're downloading. I appreciate your downloading and listening to this, uh, especially to my good friend Jill, uh, with whom I've uh, gone to school forever and ever. Uh, I know you're listening, and thanks for the text message the other day. That was uh, that was really encouraging. So uh, this one's for you. Not necessarily the topic. I don't even know how it would apply, but I uh, hope you get something out of it. <laughs> and for everybody else who's listening, feel free to uh, email us at info at nogginnotes.com or info at zephyrwellness.org with your feedback and your suggestions for future content on the show, and I will certainly address it the best that I can. Speaking of Zephyr Wellness, that's the company that I co-own, and we sponsor the show because I co-own it, uh, and it's my time, so that's, that's my form of sponsorship. If you'd like to dethrone me as a sponsor, though, uh, I would really appreciate it because this stuff uh, does cost money. And uh, if if I ever want to upgrade my equipment at some point in the future and stop uh, talking into a microphone stuffed into a wine box <laughs> surrounded by uh, acoustic foam, then then we'd need some donations. So uh, feel free to um, contact uh, info at nogginotes.com or info at zephyrwellness.org about sponsorship opportunities for the show. I'll gladly do live reads of whatever your product is and um, in exchange for a few bucks and we can work that out and maybe I can maybe I can get an upgraded uh, studio system here or something. But in the meantime, we'll just keep producing it for free. That's the whole point. Um, we want people to heal on their own. Noggin Notes started out as the only podcast that aims to enrich and educate your noggin on matters of spirituality, psychology, uh, sociology, uh, religion, uh, contemporary mental health issues, and mental illness struggles. And uh, we hope to continue doing that for as long as I am around because the content is ever-blooming and evergreen. And um, I'm just uh, always, always thrilled that people actually listen to what I have to say. When you stop and think about it, it's, it's quite arrogant to think that I should put something out there because it's so valuable that people would want to listen to it uh, such that I keep doing it. But apparently they do. So, um, so thanks for that. It keeps me humble. This episode is on the five ethical principles of counseling, and I spend a whole lot more time on autonomy than I do the other four. But I promise they all weave together in one fell swoop. And I, I do end up illustrating how you can break all five ethical principles by violating someone's autonomy. So I hope you enjoy it. Cue the guitar. So today we're talking about the bedrock principles of counseling ethics. And I think this is an important and fascinating topic for both clinicians and uh, lay people alike. I don't really like the word lay people. It sounds, it sounds pejorative and kind of condescending. But anyway, uh, a lay person, uh, for those of you who don't know, is somebody who's simply not a part of the profession about which uh, the conversation is occurring. So a lay person to a medical profession is basically anybody who doesn't practice in medicine. A lay person to a counseling profession is anybody who doesn't practice in counseling. And you have lay people uh, who lay outside of the, the profession, whether it be plumbing or carpentry or auto mechanics or whatever. So um, within our profession of, of counseling, we have five uh, concrete bedrock ethical principles, and I'll, I'll list them off in a minute. But they, uh, they're not ours, actually, as it turns out. They were designed in 1979 by two authors of the book Principles of Biomedical Ethics. And those two authors are Tom Beauchamp and James Childress. 
They wrote the book, and they originally came up with four, and then in 1984, a different author added, added the fifth one. So here's what they are. Autonomy, or respect for autonomy, justice, fidelity, non-maleficence, and beneficence. Now, I know that uh, some of those sound like, you know, 75-cent words, and, um, and we're, we're really good at that as uh, helping professionals. And, you know, we grab onto big, giant words when we could use small ones. But I'll go through them and, and break them down for you. So the respect for a person's autonomy, which is one of the original four, it, it basically outlines the idea that people are responsible for their own decision-making. So th- this is important because as clinicians, we don't want to make what uh, Conti called the error of omnipotence in his five errors of communication. And I'm not going to go to this right now, but but the error of omnipotence, and omnipotence meaning all-powerful. Usually we think of like God as all-powerful. Uh, omnipotence is all-powerful. Omniscience is all-knowing. And omnipresence is all places, so everywhere. But omnipotence, making the error of omnipotence, essentially means that you make the mistake of thinking that you're responsible for somebody else's behaviors or their choices or their outcomes. And especially in our profession, we have a tendency to, to celebrate the, the successes as though we accomplished them ourselves um, and our clients did nothing. And then, and then the failures are not about us. It's, it was the client's decision. Well, autonomy respects that in both regards. So if a client is successful, it's because they t- uh, took the steps necessary to become successful and overcome their challenges and whatnot. And, uh, and if they don't, that's also on them, and, that, and that's fine. So uh, it, it puts us as clinicians in a strange bind where, where we don't get to celebrate much, uh, but we also don't get to you know, take blame for much either. Uh, and, the, and the way we wrestle through that, uh, if I could birdwalk this just a little bit, is we simply arrive, or we, we should, we should try to arrive at a place of peace where we just say, it was nice to be part of your journey and to help you along. And what human being doesn't enjoy being helped and helping. So that takes away the error of omnipotence and respects the person's autonomy. So that's ethical principle number one is, is autonomy. Justice is another one of the original four. And justice is basically just doing the right thing, uh, not discriminating, and also infusing a sense of advocacy for your clients. So, so trying to trying to do something broader that's, that's going to be just for everyone. So maybe you, you advocate for your client um, to, to their doctor to maybe, um, you know, look at medication adjustments, or maybe you advocate for them, uh, in, in a legal way to help them get housing or something like that. Uh, that's not really legal, I suppose, but, but you might help them get housing or, you know, there's a little bit of case management piece that may incorporate there. You may point them in the direction of an education or some job training, or you may go advocate for policy change at a broad level, uh, city, state, county levels of, of policy change. So if you're, if you're in the field like I am with uh, behavioral health and you want to uh, change some laws, that's the justice part. Do the right thing. Um, do a little bit of advocacy. Don't discriminate. Charge fair rates. Don't price gouge. You know, all the, all the, the righteous stuff that you can do. So justice is, is another principle that forms our foundation. Now, the third one I listed off was fidelity. Now, fidelity means, means faithful, uh, and it comes from Latin. This I mentioned was the Fourth, uh, the the last one added in the fifth one, and it was added by Karen Strom Kitchener in 1984. What you want to do with fidelity, if you're a counselor, is you want to be honest and trustworthy and fair, fulfilling your commitments to your clients by honoring them, not making the session all about yourself, but also following through with what you say. And you want to be as as authentic and consistent as possible. Now, this doesn't mean that you you go disclosing 
uh, information for your own sake in session. You don't go making the session about you. And if you have a counselor who's doing that, always talking about themselves and, um, you know, it's not really relevant, then they're, they're probably violating the principle of fidelity. So fidelity, you want to be honest and trustworthy and transparent and, and consistent and, and authentic. But you don't want to tilt so far to that side that you expose everything about your life and leave no room for the client. So then we have two more, and they were the the, the bigger words. Non-maleficence, which if you spell it out, it looks like non-malfeasance, uh, and, and that's a different thing. Malfeasance is when somebody who's typically an elected position abuses the power of the office. That's, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about non-maleficence. And for those of you who are familiar with uh, Disney lore and movies you might think of the character maleficent and she's uh she's the one with the the, the big horns uh coming out of her head and I, I actually haven't seen the movies i don't know if they're horns or if it's just a hat but but uh but they're they're like uh, they're like big goat horns that come out of her head and um and she's very bad and wicked and maleficent means bad so uh or harm so non-maleficence means we don't want to harm people uh, and then countered with that is beneficence. If you're being beneficial, you're helping. You're you're beneficent. So, so we have the principles of non-maleficence, meaning don't hurt anybody, and beneficence, help somebody. So try to do some good along the way. So those are the five. And and to recap, autonomy respects people's ability to do uh, what they do for themselves on their own, and we don't make the error of omnipotence thinking that we're responsible for their behaviors. Um, we respect their liberty. And then we have justice, do the right thing, fidelity, be, be, be fair and be, be honest and be transparent, um, non-maleficence, don't hurt anybody, and beneficence, help somebody while you're doing it. Those are all supposed to be in balance, uh, reasonably uh, equal one to the next. But for me, I, I, and I train this uh, to my, oh, as my papers go falling to the floor. I have some maps here, so that's what the, the sound was behind me. I'm going to pick them up, and it's going to make for really good radio as I make more noise. But um, for me, autonomy tends to to reign supreme above the others because it's the easiest one to violate. And we just had a podcast on boundaries and violating boundaries and how important boundaries and limits are. Well, it's really easy to violate autonomy because as, as a clinician who's hired, you know, supposedly for our expertise and paid very good money, uh, someone's paying it, whether it's an insurance or, you know, a cash payer, we're paid very good money for, for what we're trying to do. And it's really easy to slip into the role of know-it-all. And then you start giving advice and then instructing people how to live their lives. And that's, that's really inappropriate because they're all, they all invite violations of that autonomy. Now, I can... I can hear some people giving pushback because I've heard pushback on this before where people will be strict interpreters of autonomy and say, there is no such thing as violating a person's autonomy because no one makes another person do anything. And there's fair value to be placed in that uh, in, in a vacuum. If we all lived in a vacuum, that's true. Um, we always have choices, and that isn't always. And I almost never go binary on these things, you know, either or, all, nothing, black, white, always, never. Well, we always have choices. Um, there, I, I can't think of a time when you don't have a choice uh, when somebody asks you to do something or a situation is presented. So even if we take the, the very extreme incident of having a gun pointed at you and being demanded your wallet on the street by a mugger, you have a choice. You don't have to give the wallet over. Uh, I, I think we hear all too often people go, I just didn't have a choice. Yes, you do. You always, always, always have a choice. The issue may be that you don't like the potential outcomes of, of one choice over another, 
Uh, so you make a choice that maybe isn't in your best interest at that time, but it, but it preserves you, it protects you, it protects someone else. So, um, but we always have choices. So some people who push back on the idea that we can ever violate someone's autonomy, and I'll put that in air quotes for you, uh, the violate part, I would say to them this, um, in the counseling, uh, counseling, therapeutic, helping relationship, what invariably happens is a power differential. And in that power differential, you have someone who's, who's hurting, who's, who's sick, who wants help, comes in, hires a professional to help them, and they've essentially placed trust in that professional to know what direction to take and to do so with compassion and, and, um, and honor and deference. And if we don't do that, if we, if we take this person in who's, who's hurting, sick, um, psychologically wounded, uh, grieving, whatever it may be, and we start imparting our authority over them, in that power differential to tell them how to do their life as opposed to simply giving them more options or providing an illumination, then what we do is we violate their autonomy. We've made ourselves the the governors of their life, and that's not appropriate. The reason it's not appropriate, uh, spiders out in many forms, but I'm going to highlight a couple. One, if someone comes in and they're seeking counsel, wisdom, guidance, direction, illumination, awareness, whatever, and I instead give them advice, I'm flexing the power differential to say, I know best for you. And I don't. That's not true. I can't possibly ever know what's best for someone else. I can only know what's best for me, and I can only know what's best for me in the very limited knowledge that I have in the moment that I have that knowledge, and then I'm about to make the the decision that I do. So even I, oftentimes, we, you listening to this, we really don't know truly what's in our best interests uh, without some massive aware uh, amount of personal awareness and plugging into inner divinity that uh, guides us. So we don't really ever know what's quote unquote best for us, but we certainly know what's best for us more than another person who doesn't know us at all. And so even though I may have a graduate degree and thousands of hours of clinical experience and a license to go help illuminate options for someone. And I may look at somebody who's, who's really hurting and made a very long pattern of bad decisions in their lives that, you know, hurt themselves or others. I, I, I technically have no authority over their life to say what they should or should not do. And therefore I probably should not be giving them that advice. What I can do is say, you know, it seems like this pattern of decisions that you've made hasn't worked out the way that you wanted. Maybe you could consider, X instead of Y. Now that's an appropriate intervention that honors their autonomy and simply points out some alternative options compared to where they were before. But for me to say, you've made this pattern of decisions in your life. It hasn't seemed to work out. If I were you, I would. Now I'm flirting with violating their autonomy because I'm suggesting how they go about living their life. Now that's not to say that we don't ever give advice. Sometimes advice is solicited of us and the person truly doesn't know. And in the case of maybe um, children who are in uh, foster care who don't have parents and uh, aren't necessarily surrounded by consistent, healthy individuals, it is appropriate to say, do your homework. That's, that's advice giving. To a child who has no structure and has never been told why homework is important, it might be appropriate for me to step into that role and say, you know, uh, Johnny, I don't know why it's always Johnny, Johnny and Timmy and Susie. Those are the kids that we always use. But, um, but I might say, Hey, Johnny, um, I think you should do your homework. 
Now I'm giving him advice, but it's coming from a place of long research history and and I'm stepping into a vacuum in his life that he doesn't have. It's it's probably wildly inappropriate actually for me to uh, do what in our field we would call motivational interviewing with say a, an eight or nine year old and say, well, I don't know, Johnny, what do you think you should do? Um, if the kid literally lacks any direction whatsoever because he's only experienced abuse and neglect his whole life, he's literally not going to know. And I'm not doing him any favors by being the adult in his life who is successful and offering some some sort of wisdom to let him decide on his own. His brain hasn't developed enough. He doesn't have the social skills. He doesn't have the parental infrastructure. Um, it would benefit him more. And now we're getting into the other ethical uh, concepts here. I would provide more beneficence, meaning more help to him, just to simply tell him what to do. Go do your homework, obey your parents, um, show up on time, shower in the morning, brush your teeth. He needs those things because he's never had them before. It would be maleficent, meaning it would do him harm, if I were to let him make the decision on his own. That's highly inappropriate. So for adults, it's a little different story, and I I, I don't mean to turn this into a supervision podcast where I would have this uh, conversation differently with with interns and students, but you, you start to get the idea where, uh, depending on the client sitting in front of you, it may or may not be appropriate to just straight up give someone advice. So if you're giving advice, you're inherently violating their autonomy. With children, uh, we, by law and by development, developmental stage, uh, we don't give them autonomy very often. Uh, we might give them autonomy in w- what cereals to choose, but we're controlling the selection, for example. So uh, we don't just turn children loose on the world and say, go live your life, because they're just simply unprepared uh, for, for a variety of reasons, you know, bi- biology included. So getting back to the idea of autonomy, if we, if we give somebody advice and they take it, and it works. We violated their autonomy. We said, you should, you should break up with that guy. You should quit that job. You should go to school. You should uh, sell your car. You should move to Tahiti. Whatever we say they should do. That's done through our lens, not theirs. And I don't know what's best for that person. They do. I can only give some other options that I see that they may not see. And that's the, the art of pointing out blind spots for people. But if I give them advice and they take it and it works, they haven't solved their problem. I have. And now I've created an unethical power differential of dependency upon me, the client to me, to solve all of his or her problems. And that's not right. Um, We have ethical principles uh, scattered that throughout our our ethical codes, whether you're a social worker, a psychologist, or marriage and family therapist, professional counselor, or drug and alcohol, substance abuse counselor, we all have our ethical codes and, and they more or less mirror each other. In many ways, uh, and they but they all trickle out from those five bedrock ethical principles, and so continuing a pattern of dependence where I've made the client dependent upon my decision making is highly unethical because I've now padded my calendar, which is great for my financial stability, um, but not great for their own freedom, their own liberty, and their own ability to launch on their own and make their own choices such that now I become financially dependent upon them and they're psychologically dependent upon me. That's an unhealthy relationship. We don't want that to happen. That's not in the spirit of anything that, that we want to do. I violated their autonomy. Um, I've, I've done, I'm not being just, I'm certainly not being faithful. And, um, and on, on top of that, I violated the, the, the nuances in my own ethical codes that, that say, don't do that. <laughs> um, we don't, we don't want to create a dependent relationship, especially for financial gain. So if, if we give advice and they take it and it works, I've solved their problem, not them. That's one major problem. 
Another major problem is if I give them advice and they take it and it doesn't work, now I violated the principle of non-maleficence. I've harmed them because I violated their trust. So I violated fidelity. I haven't done the right thing, which is justice. I haven't um, I haven't helped them because it obviously failed. So I violated beneficence and I violated non-maleficence because I've hurt them because they put their trust in me. They listened to what I said. They went out and did it and it didn't work. Um, it's, I've managed to violate all five ethical principles all in one fell swoop simply because I thought I knew best for this person when I can't possibly, because I'm not them, but I'm also not God. I'm not, I'm not the divine. I think, by the way, side note, I think only the divine knows what's best for anyone at any time. But, um, it's, it's a really arrogant, uh, mode to step into or a persona to step into to think that you know what a person should do. It disrupts all sorts of developmental processes too because I've robbed them of the ability to work through their own stuff so that they themselves have the the learning and the development in order to go solve other stuff later. I've, I've, uh, I've created great harm and on top of that, they probably come back and hate me anyway. So that dependent relationship that I thought I had that padded my calendar, that fattened my wallet because I could rely on them week after week after week just to go tell them what to do and how to live their life. Now that goes away because it doesn't work. So I've even harmed myself in the process by giving them advice that doesn't work. The, that's why I like autonomy among, I'm sorry, above all the other four. I think it's the easiest to violate. I harp on it regularly. And I think it needs to remain supreme among the four ethical, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, among the five ethical principles uh, ahead and above the other four, simply because there's so much damage and destruction that can be done if we, if we violate it. If we break somebody's autonomy and we abuse the power differential in our relationship, we run a lot of risk of all sorts of ugliness. And, and overarching all this, I suppose, is the fact that if I harm somebody by the, by the feedback that I give them, I've given a black eye to my whole profession such that that person may never seek counseling again and they'll just exist in misery perpetually thinking that they're on their own and they can never trust another clinician or another helping professional. And it's really, really sad to, to say. So I don't want to do that. So what I have to do in order to honor people's autonomy, and I would invite this with the listening audience, you guys out there who are listening, I would invite you to consider the fact that when people come to you, you don't have to be a professional, you don't have to be a clinician or, or a license holder to embrace some of these ethical principles. And I think, I, again, I'm harping on autonomy, so I'll just use that one. If somebody comes to you for feedback, advice, counsel, guidance, whatever, remember that they're responsible for their own decision making and remember that they're responsible for living their own life on their own terms. And you may be able to influence them, but you want to be very mindful of how much you do that and how far it goes. It's very easy for us to influence our friends and our families and our coworkers and our colleagues to such a degree that you end up violating all those ethical principles anyway, even though you're not technically or, or legally or occupationally beholden to them, you can still violate them and it still ripples out harm and and evil, I guess you could say, uh, toxicity, uh, pain into the world that you then have to live in. So I would encourage you, like I encourage myself on a regular basis and I encourage my students and my interns and my employees to be able to tolerate other people in distress. And we've already done a, uh, a podcast on that, I believe. If, if I'm making that up, then please correct me. Somebody email me. But I know I wrote a five-piece article on it on Reno Dads. So if you want to read it, um, renodads.com is where you can go. And there's, there's a five-part 
uh, series on distress tolerance. But being able to watch other people as they struggle and suffer through their own pain is really important. It's crucial to respecting their autonomy. And then you don't end up flirting with ethical violations or potentially causing more pain in the very world in which you have to live. Watching people grow through their own distress is everything. It's everything to development, personal growth, self-efficacy, accomplishment, and ultimately happier living. So resist the urge to bail people out of their distress uh, in, in, the, in the immediate and trust and have faith that in the long term, they will be better off for wrestling through their own problems and making their own choices. And it sounds cruel, and it's not. It's really hard to watch somebody making repeated mistakes over and over and over, and all you can do is sit there and go, well, here's some other options, and then watch them as they maybe choose or choose not to to follow the other options. It's very challenging, but if they... I I can tell you that if people work through enough distress, they eventually do figure out how to make better choices and live a healthy, happier life. may not be in your time frame, but that's not up to you. That's up to them if you really want to respect their autonomy. So to recap, uh, five ethical principles that govern our field. They're uh, they're the core. They're the bedrock of what we do. Autonomy, justice, fidelity, non-maleficence, and beneficence. And uh, maybe you can have those rolling around in your head if you want to, you know, take them into your life. Be be my guest. I think they're they're an awesome set of uh, commandments by which to live, and I think you you won't go wrong by them. As always, thanks for listening. Feel free to write in info at zephyrwellness.org and info at nogginnotes.com if you want to connect with us and give us ideas for future shows. Thanks for listening, and I wish you all great mental wellness. Bye bye.